BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Nice buns. Soft, fluffy, and ultra-low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra-low net carb bread. With incredible taste and texture, Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O C-O. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash checkthelocks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
Welcome back to the Check the Locks podcast. As always, I am John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we get started, Olivia, thank you for being here. I am so happy to see you. This is my favorite part of my week. So thank you. I'm, I'm super excited to do this. I know. I'm excited today. I'm excited to hear about this case. I haven't read about it at all. So I'm going to be honest with you. I was like, let's see if I could pick one that will make Olivia check the locks. <laughs> I don't want to say too soon, but I think I did a pretty good job. I'm excited to go over it with you. And for the listeners at home, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the support. Hopefully you've been enjoying the episodes up until this point. This, I think, is going to be a long one. So I don't know if we just kind of want to jump into it this week. Yeah, let's go ahead. Awesome. So this week, we are talking about the disappearance of Sherry Faye Smith. So our story begins on May 31st, 1985 in Lexington, South Carolina. Bob Smith was looking out the window of his home office and saw his 17-year-old daughter, Sherry, pull up in their driveway. Bob was a chaplain who had moved his family from the country to escape the hustle and bustle of the big city life. As Bob watched, Sherry, who was wearing a red bandana on her head, hopped out of the car to check the family's mailbox. Bob continued to work, expecting Sherry to walk in the door at any time. A few minutes later, Bob had noticed that he didn't hear Sherry enter the home. He then walked down to the driveway to make sure that everything was okay. When Bob arrived at the mailbox, he was shaken by what he found. Her car was running, and her keys and purse were inside the vehicle, but Sherry was nowhere to be found. Bob immediately called the local authorities. Lexington County Sheriff James Metz was preparing to leave for vacation with his family when he received the call that Sherry was missing. Sheriff Metz knew Bob Smith, and he felt that he needed to visit the residence. When Metz arrived at the scene, he noticed that there were footsteps leading out to the mailbox with mail scattered all about the street. The sheriff's gut told him something was very wrong. Because of his relationship with the Smith family, Sheriff Metz suspected that Sherry would not be the type of teenager to just take off without telling her family. So I wanted to pause right there and kind of ask you, right? Even taking it out of like a parent watching their child, but like if a friend of yours pulled up to your house and you saw them checking the mailbox for you and then you looked out, their car was still there, but they were just gone. What would be running through your head? Yeah, that's really scary. I just had a roommate live with me here not too long ago. And if I noticed that she was outside and all of a sudden she was not coming inside the house, I'd be really concerned and probably go look to see like what happened, where'd she go? Yeah, and it just seems so crazy to think that somebody could disappear like that in just a matter of minutes. You look up, she's there, you put your head down, put your head back up, and then she's gone. So She's just gone, yeah. And that's a scary feeling because he's like, maybe if I just watched the whole time, I would have you know, seen what happened to her. Yeah, and to kind of understand why this was concerning, I think we need to take a little bit of a deeper look at who Sherry Faye Smith is. She was a straight-A student who had never given her parents any problems. Sherry was a friendly girl, but people have described her as the kind of person who would never take candy from a stranger. Sherry also had a passion for singing and was described as having a beautiful voice. She was about to graduate from high school and was actually going to be singing the national anthem at the graduation ceremony. What was also concerning was that Sherry had a type of diabetes called diabetes insipidus. She did have to drink more water than the average person, and if she didn't, she would become disoriented. She could wander off, not be familiar with her surroundings. And Olivia, I wanted to ask you, as a nurse, you know, I'm sure that you have some experience with diabetes insipidus. What is your understanding of it for people who may be listening and wondering what it entails? Diabetes insipidus isn't like insulin needing diabetes where people have to take insulin or they have to take medicine that helps their pancreas produce insulin. Um, diabetes insipidus is more of a hormonal problem where our body can't regulate what to do with our fluid. And so you have intense, tense thirst 
where you want to drink all the time and then you have very heavy urination. And so these people have to drink water, but also take medications that kind of balance their hormones so that their body's basically regulating normal. So it can be a serious condition. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was gathering from reading from it. And thank you for sharing that because I think that, you know, when you're reading about something and you don't have that background of it, it's kind of hard to understand. But when you hear somebody and you can have that conversation about it, it makes it a little bit more understandable. Yeah, especially when you hear about diabetes, because people just assume it's a sugar problem. Yeah. And I think for the family, this really plays into effect at at this moment, because, you know, they're worried, you know, is she low on fluids and, you know, kind of freaked out and got disoriented and just kind of wandered off? Or could something else have happened? There's probably a lot of things racing through the family's head at that point. Right. So because of the type of teenager that Sherry was, Metz was convinced that something very serious had happened to her. The sheriff immediately dispatched officers to canvas the neighborhood, and as the officers were searching the area and the roads near Sherry's home, they made an important discovery. The red bandana that Bob Smith had seen Sherry wearing was laying in the road some distance from the home. This led authorities to believe that Sherry had, in fact, been kidnapped. As the sun began to set and the night crept in, tension continued to grow in the Smith house. There was still no sign of Sherry, and the family was consumed with fear and anxiety. The following morning, roughly 300 volunteers began to search for Sherry Smith. Some volunteers actually flew small planes overhead to search by air. The media had gotten word of Sherry's disappearance, so Sheriff Metz took the opportunity to ask people to volunteer in the search party. While Metz truly wanted as many people as possible out searching for Sherry, his real hope is that whoever took her would be among the hundreds who volunteered to help. In fact, and I don't know if you know this, Olivia, but it is actually common for someone who would commit a crime of this nature to want to come back and be involved in the search or the investigation. Did you know that? I kind of did. I feel like whenever you have these like missing persons cases that make national news, you know, Nancy Grace, she gets your name out there if you're ever missing. But I feel like they have talked about that on like her TV show where they're looking for suspects that may come back and help, which I think is really creepy. Yeah, it definitely would take a dark kind of person to commit a crime like that and then want to come back and put themselves into this search or put themselves into this investigation. And I wonder if part of it is like, I'm smarter than you. Like I'm here right in front of your face. Look what I did. You don't even know that I did it. And I'm here standing next to you. I also wonder if, if part of it is a way for them to kind of prolong the experience of enjoying what they've done and like enjoying the kill enjoying seeing the suffering and like the panic that they've caused it just kind of being able to sit right in the middle of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kind of like seeing if people can put the pieces together of the puzzle that they did, you know? Right. The way I think about it is like, I just did this terrible thing. I've got all these people worried. All these people are here searching because of something that I've done. And now I'm planting myself in the middle and I'm just kind of basking in the glow of as weird as it sounds like enjoying my work. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, it's part of being probably a sociopath. So because of this, law enforcement decided to take photos and video recordings of the people who came out to search. At this point, investigators believe that Cherry may still be alive and that someone may be holding her captive. Law enforcement and the Smith family had been searching for Cherry nonstop. And as everyone began to feel exhausted and beat down, the telephone rang. I wish I had a telephone sound effect. It was now three days after Sherry Smith had been kidnapped from her family's home. At around 3 a.m., while the Smiths were trying to get what rest they could, they received a phone call. The caller asked to speak to Sherry's mother, Hilda Smith. Thinking that it was someone in the sheriff's office, Hilda took the phone call, but it wasn't a member of law enforcement. It was Sherry's abductor. 
The caller shared that Sherry was still alive and that he wanted the sheriff to call off the search. Shocked and terrified, the Smiths quickly informed the detectives who had been posted outside the family's home. Hilda informed detectives that the caller had given her proof that he did in fact have Sherry. He was able to describe the clothing that Sherry was wearing at the time of her disappearance. He demanded the search be called off if the family ever wanted to see their daughter alive again. The caller also told Hilda that she would soon receive more proof that Cherry was alive and that she would receive a letter in the mail. So I want to stop there and ask you, because as a parent, this terrified me to think that somebody would take my child and then would call and kind of start this almost like a tormenting game, you know? It's actually very unsettling that if you were the mom and somebody is calling you and saying like, hey, I have your daughter and they know what you're, you mean, obviously they know what her name is based off of probably Sherry telling them, but like, it's just creepy that now like they know your phone number. He obviously knows where you live. What, what is my risk as the parent? You know, like, are they going to come back and like do something to harm us? Do you not tell the detectives? Obviously you do, but you know, it's just, it's kind of a scary threatening moment because you don't want to do anything wrong and then feel like, well, if Sherry doesn't make it out alive, then this is all on me. And I love the way that you're thinking because it foreshadows some things and some details a little bit further into the case, but you're right. It's like, this guy is calling. He's giving me information that leads me to believe that he does have my child and I don't want to piss this guy off or say the wrong thing. Because what if that results in something happening to them? So I can't imagine, you know, again, I don't ever want to be that guy that's like, as a dad, but as a dad, this scared the hell out of me. Yeah, I'm liking the story so far, though. Keep going. Okay, I would love to. While terrified and distraught, the phone call also verified that Sherry was alive, and it did instill some hope in the Smith family. Officers immediately headed to the phone company to try to pull the call records. Eventually, they were able to determine that the call had come from a payphone outside of a grocery store only about 12 miles away from the family home. But unfortunately, no one came forward saying that they witnessed a man making a phone call around that time. The prosecutor's office then filed a request with the United States Postal Service to have the local post office opened. Investigators were hoping to intercept a letter that was supposed to be coming from Sherry. The request was granted and law enforcement began sorting through an enormous amount of mail. But unlike a needle in a haystack, detectives were able to locate the letter they were looking for. But the contents of the letter were not what they expected. Should we take guesses of what's in there? Yeah. What do you think is in there? A body part? A finger? A finger? I don't know. I'm trying to think of what torture people do. I'm going to go with either a body part or she didn't have her purse or anything. So you're feeling pretty confident as body part. I think it's a body part. I'm going with a body part. Okay. Let's see if you're right. There was no ransom request or demands. Instead, investigators discovered two pieces of legal paper titled Last Will and Testament. The letter was in Sherry's handwriting and read as follows. I love you, Mommy, Daddy, Robert, Dawn, and Richard. I will be with my father now, so please don't worry. Just remember my witty personality and great special times we all shared together. Please don't ever let this ruin your lives. Just keep living one day at a time for Jesus. Some good will come out of this. My thoughts will always be and in you. And then in parentheses, she wrote, closed casket. I love you all so damn much. Sorry, Dad. I had to cuss for once. Jesus, forgive me. Richard, sweetie, I really did and always will love you and treasure our special moments. I ask one thing, though. Accept Jesus as your personal savior. My family has been the greatest influence on my life. So sorry about the cruise money. Someday, please go in my place. I'm sorry if I ever disappointed you in any way. I only wanted to make you proud of me because I've always been proud of my family. The letter continued. Mom, Dad, Robert, and Dawn, there's so much I want to say and I should have said before now. 
I love you. I know y'all love me and will miss me very much, but if y'all stick together like we always did, y'all can do it. Please do not become hard or upset. Everything works out for the good for those who love the Lord. The letter was closed. All my love, always, Sharon Sherry Smith. Jeez. In my opinion, worse than a body part. Ten times worse, hundred times worse than a body part. I was trying to think that this case was going to be like a gruesome case, but it just seems sad at this point. Like she got to say everything she wanted to say, and it almost seems like she's okay with the terms that she's likely going to be murdered. And I agree with you 100%. It definitely seems like she knew what was coming. But one thing that really stuck out to me reading this letter was thinking about what kind of person she must have been. A sweetheart. Like when she mentioned Richard from the research I did, Richard was her high school boyfriend at the time. So she's like, I love you. Just find, you know, accept Jesus because I, you know, I want you to be safe. This whole letter is her telling other people not to let what is happening to her ruin their lives. Ruin them. Yeah. Ruin them. Make them hard. Make them angry. And I have to admit, like, I was tearing up a little bit when I was doing this research and and reading this letter. This is rough in my head because I was thinking originally, like, you, maybe it's a body part. And in my head, I was like, I don't know what I almost rather get, like, a pinky than something like this that's kind of, you know, letting you know what's going to happen. Yeah. So we definitely don't have a, um, a murderer like Saul on here. Yeah, it's definitely crazy. So at this point, obviously, the Smith family was terrified and heartbroken. The pressure to find Sherry's kidnapper was now escalated to an even higher level. The kidnapper told Sherry's mother, Hilda, that he would be calling again. Authorities wanted to make sure that this time they were ready for the call. Detectives placed what is called a drop line in the home. This would allow the phone to ring in the home, but also connect to the telephone company directly. With this drop line, police would then be able to see exactly where the phone was coming from. But just like in the movies, in order to determine the caller's location, he would need to remain on the line for over one minute. Let me guess, his phone call was 59 seconds. Right. And I didn't think that this was actually a thing. I didn't. I always thought that was like a movie. Po- a movie thing. Yeah, it's a movie thing. Like you have to keep him on the line so we can determine where he is. But apparently it's a real thing. Hilda would need to keep the kidnapper on the phone. Then the call came in. The caller asked Hilda, have you received the mail today? Hilda replied, yes, I have. The caller asked, do you believe me now? Hilda replied, well, I'm not really sure I believe you because I haven't had any word from Sherry and I need to know that Sherry as well. The caller responded, you'll know in two or three days. Why two or three days, Hilda asked. The caller simply said, call the search off and hung up the call. Though Hilda had tried her best, she was not able to keep the caller on the line long enough to trace. According to Sheriff Metz, the caller seemed to have known that the detectives may have been trying to trace the call. His communication was always brief and seemed as if it was written down. The Smith family then made the decision to hold a press conference and beg for Sherry's safe return. Only a few hours after the press conference was televised, the kidnapper called again. This time, Hilda attempted to express to the kidnapper just how much her daughter meant to her. She told the kidnapper, you know, listen, you tell Sherry one thing. What's that? He asked in reply. There is no way my life could ever have any happiness again if Sherry left this world. I'll do anything to work it out. The kidnapper replied, she knows that. He told the family that despite the tone of the letter, Sherry was still alive and he would call back soon with the location of where to find her. Then the kidnapper hung up, but this time, detectives were able to trace the call. Authorities determined that the call had come from another payphone only a few miles away. Police were now guarding the home around the clock, and the emotional stress of the situation continued to weigh on the family. In an interview, Sherry's brother Robert said the family was all going its own way and trying to cope and deal with the situation. Then the kidnapper called again. 
So I wanted to pause there because at this point, the daughter has been missing for three or four days and they've already received this is the, what the, the third phone call from this guy. So I know for me in researching this, trying to put my brain into this family's shoes where your daughter is missing. And then it's almost like you're being teased or like taunted or tormented. I, I, I don't know. It was just really hard for me to wrap my head around what that may feel like. It's got to be like walking around on eggshells at home. You know, you never know when the phone's going to ring. You never know when you're going to get the phone call that may say that Sherry's dead. Or even if you do get the phone call that says, okay, here's the location where Sherry is. What do you find when you go to that location? And it's just unsettling. Like he hasn't said anything other than call off the search. Like what does he want? What, what does he want from these phone calls? What does he want from the mom? Nothing's been said. Yeah, you're right. There is no direction that's being given. It's almost as if he's just trying to torment them and bring that emotional abuse aspect into it. And it's really frightening that number one, somebody could do something like this, but then number two, they would then call and try to continue that feeling as long as they could. Yeah, he's just egging it on. It's almost just tormenting the family. Yeah, it's crazy. So on this call, the kidnapper informed Hilda that they would need to wait one more day to see Sherry. Hilda begged the man for Sherry's safety. Do not kill my daughter, please. I mean, please, Hilda responded. The kidnapper replied, we love and miss y'all. Get good rest tonight. Goodbye. Who's we? We? Exactly. We love you. We miss you. You don't know me, sir. Unless they do. Who knows? I don't know. That's weird. That's weird. Yeah. It almost seems now if he's trying to position it as he has a relationship, right? Like, we love you. We miss you. Like, if you were married or had a boyfriend, you were right into family. Like, hey, mom, you know, we miss you. We love you. We can't wait to see you. It almost puts a sense of intimacy in there. Yeah, it's really dark. Now, for as much emotional distress that these calls were causing, in a strange way, the calls kept the Smiths' hope alive, and they prayed that they would be reunited with their daughter. It had now been a week since Sherry's disappearance, and the entire time the kidnapper had been relentlessly tormenting her family. The Smiths now had to sit and wait for the next phone call, hoping that the kidnapper would keep his word and release their daughter. At 11.54 a.m., the call finally came. The kidnapper provided exact directions to the location where they could find their daughter. Having the directions, authorities raced to the scene. Sherry's family waited anxiously for any word, hoping that Sherry would be returned alive. Sheriff Metz was the first person to arrive at the location provided by the kidnapper. What he found was devastating. Metz discovered Sherry's body lying face up. She was still wearing the same clothes she had on the day that she had disappeared, and she was covered in a plastic-like see-through material. 17-year-old Sherry Faye Smith was dead, and Metz now had to inform the family. As the Smiths struggled with the loss of their daughter, Sherry, authorities began to investigate the area where the body was found. Unfortunately, they were not able to determine an exact cause of death. More disturbing, the body appeared to have been in that location for days. The kidnapper had killed Sherry the day that he took her and then toyed with the family for days afterward. So I wanted to stop right there because this is a level of sickness. Again, researching this case, you know, I was up late. I was reading and there's not really a lot of stuff that gets to me personally when watching true crime documentaries and stuff like that. Usually I can kind of brush stuff off. But I was like, oh, this guy is pure evil that you would do something like this and then just enjoy messing with the family for days after. Yeah. Do you think that Sherry even wrote that last will and testament then? So they do think that she did write it because it was so much in her voice. The way that she writes in the letter the family has said it definitely came from her because as they're reading it, they could hear 
her in that letter. I think it'd be very hard for someone to write in someone's voice if you don't really know that person, you know? Right. It's like nowadays you can tell based on text messaging, like, oh, I don't text like that. I don't sound like that. I don't say things like that. I don't use punctuation, you know? Yeah. It's crazy just to think that he kidnapped her, had her write that, then killed her and dumped her body. And then was like, let me call the family now and just just a couple more days, you'll get her back. Just a couple more days, you'll get her back. It's it's almost like I'm not that bad of a guy. I let her say her goodbyes, even though the family had hopes that she was still alive at the time. But it's still very sickening that he's like, okay, here, say what you have to say. But it's like I said, when we were actually reading the letter, it almost felt like Sherry was at peace with the fact that she was going to die. Like almost if she did write this letter, she knew that she wasn't going to come out alive. Yeah. And again, I think it's very telling of what kind of person that she was. That in that whole letter, she's just asking other people, be okay. It's very sad, but it's also very like, oh, you were just a good person, you know? Yeah, she sounds like she's a really sweet woman. As the family began funeral preparations for Sherry, the phone rang again. This time, Hilda couldn't summon the strength to speak with the man who had killed her daughter. Instead, investigators convinced Sherry's sister, Dawn, to take the call. Now, Dawn was a few years older than Sherry, and at the time of her disappearance, she had actually left from college to come home and help the family search for her. The killer told Dawn that he had given Sherry a choice. He could shoot her, give her a drug overdose, or suffocate her. According to the killer, Sherry chose suffocation. Now, this is a tough question, but I did want to ask, if you were in this situation, I know what my answer would be. But if someone gave you the option and and you knew that you were coming to the end, I can shoot you, I can give you a drug overdose, or I can suffocate you, which one would you choose? I think I'm going to go with the drug overdose. I guess it also depends on what drug. Like if you're giving me just a ton of insulin and I'm just going to go comatose, great. I feel like shooting, I'd be like too anxious and on edge. I don't know. I mean, you're going to be anxious and on edge either way with any of them. But suffocation seems pretty traumatic. Like suffocating, burning, drowning, those all seem very painful. And like shooting would be quick and easy as long as he shot you in the right spot to just take you out within a second, you know? I would have to go with either shooting or drug overdose. What would be your choice? So for me, it's a toss-up between shooting and drug overdose because what are you shooting me with? Are you shooting me with a twenty-two, or, you know, you've got something that's going to get the job done immediately, right? Because what I'm looking for is immediate yes what is the most like painless way to go and what is the quickest way to go right because i don't want to live out that experience for longer than i need to yeah shooting or drug overdose i would think i mean suffocation that just seems i mean i want to know why sherry chose suffocation but then again at the same time we don't know that he really gave her a choice we don't know anything right about her body just yet we just know that she was in the same clothes and appears to be murdered on the day that she was kidnapped right so they're not sure of the cause of death yet, but they can see, you know, she wasn't shot. doesn't appear that, you know, she was injected with anything like that. They're just not able to determine exactly what caused it. But the other thing that stuck out to me was that when you think about suffocation, to me, that says personal, right? Like, I could shoot you. I can give you a drug overdose. I can end it quickly. Whereas suffocation is I'm using my hands. You know what I mean? Like, when you think about choking somebody or suffocating somebody, it's a very personal. You have to be close to a person to do that and with him calling the family toying with the family it seems like he kind of gets off on this embedding myself in trying to make a connection and then like like using that connection to just like completely mess with you you know what i mean so he also has to watch her suffocation you are like actively looking at them looking them in the eyes 
It is. That is a good. That's a very valid point. Being very personal. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the watching aspect because I think as we go into this case, that's going to come to play even more. So Don asked the man, "Why did you have to kill her?" And according to the killer, the situation had gotten out of hand and he'd gotten scared. He told Don that he asked God to forgive him, but he wasn't going to prison. As the call continued, Sheriff Metz lost control of his temper. Metz grabbed the phone from Don and explained into the phone, you son of a bitch, we're going to get you. This time, the police were able to trace the call to a truck stop nearly 60 miles away. But when they arrived, just like before, all the police found was an empty phone booth. Again, the killer was in the wind. At this point, authorities asked the FBI to get involved in the investigation and help build a profile of the person who may have murdered Sherry. And Olivia, I was wondering if you could share a little bit with us about FBI profiling. Yeah, I needed to look that up because I wasn't exactly sure how you decide. Like, you know, my question is, how do we know he's in his 20s, 30s? How do we know he perhaps lived with his parents or lives alone? So the FBI method of profiling is a system created by the FBI used to detect and classify the major personality and behavioral characteristics of an individual based upon analysis of the crime or crimes the person committed. So it's basically saying, you know, think of like little cases, if they murder their victim and then sexually assault them, or if they sexually assault them and then murder them, or if they leave like little pieces of evidence behind, like little clues around the crime scenes, like so that they can kind of compare their crimes to other crimes that are similar. So like just the behaviors and, you know, what the crimes look like. Yeah. And it's very similar. I mean, if anybody is listening and you're a fan of Criminal Minds, like that's what that show is about. They're all profilers where they look at different murders and different uh, cases and things like that and determine, you know, based on what type of crime it is or in the way that it's committed, what kind of person could potentially do this crime. So it is very interesting. So in this case, the profile indicated that the suspect would be in their late 20s to early 30s. They also suspected that the killer would live alone or perhaps with his parents. The profile also suggested that people would not believe this person to be capable of this kind of crime. They also informed the local police that calls would continue and that Sherry's sister Dawn could actually be the key to catching the killer. They believe that the killer may be intrigued with Dawn. He had seen her in photos and on TV. She was also blonde and very pretty, just like Sherry. So going back to your point about watching, he had been watching her on television in these press conferences, seeing her picture in the paper. So it could become very likely that he now feels that he has this connection with Dawn. Yeah. Interesting. Now, in an interview, Dawn said it was very painful to just have to keep playing this game, but it was the only way that they could catch him. Dawn did not want to live the rest of her life not knowing where the killer was or if he would come after her. Based on the calls that came after, Sheriff Metz believed that the killer became obsessed with Dawn. Dawn has said that the killer began trying to be friendly with her. In one moment, he would be apologizing, and the next, asking if she could handle to hear how he killed Sherry. Dawn became trapped in her home. Every call, she was there to answer. Every detail she had to hear. The challenge for Dawn was not letting the killer know how she really felt about him or the twisted game that he was playing. She would put on a brave face, make it through the calls, and then promptly fall apart. But detectives still had no leads. And then, investigators' greatest fear turned into reality. The call stopped coming. Police feared that Sherry's killer may have found another victim. I'm glad to hear that it's less likely Dawn to be the next victim, since he kind of, it seems like his obsession with her kind of dissipated after he found another victim. Like, oh, I'm too busy to call you. I have, I have another family or another person to harass at this point. Yeah, and I think for detectives, the fear was... They've lost track. 
you know, they've lost track of, okay, we've been trying to get him with these phone calls. Now we have no clue. He's just up and vanished. Still don't know who he is. Right. And there is a, there is a theory or like a common trend with serial killers where they will go back to the scene of the crime because it is some kind of gratification. They can relive what they did, those moments and those phone calls to Dawn feel very much like that, at least to me. And again, I'm not, I'm just a, just a dude sitting at home watching stuff that is kind of weird. You know what I mean? But <laughs> we get our knowledge from television and Google. But. Right. No, <laughs> but to me, it seems like this was his way of reliving that of quote, like revisiting what he did is that I can call her sister and I can, you know, mess with her and be like, you want to hear I killed your sister and this and that. And that got his, metaphorical rocks off you know what i mean like yeah. that's how he was getting his kicks so just two weeks after the abduction of sherry smith now keep in mind this is crazy too because as i'm going through this case it feels like forever has passed with the amount of phone calls it's been two weeks since sherry was kidnapped so oh, wow. it just so this yeah. is all very quick yeah it's it's crazy so just two weeks after the abduction of Sherry Smith, police in the neighboring town of Columbia, South Carolina, received a frantic phone call about another kidnapping. Nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick was abducted in open daylight. Deborah was playing outside of her house with her younger brother, Woody, when a man approached them. The Helmick's next-door neighbor watched through the window as a man walked from his car to the children and knelt down to talk to them. The neighbor assumed that the man knew the children. That is, until he saw the man grab Deborah from behind and begin to carry her away. All the neighbor could see was Deborah kicking her feet as the man carried her off. The neighbor watched in terror as the man fled the scene with nine-year-old Deborah. The neighbor didn't have a vehicle, so he immediately ran to the Helmick's home to tell them what he had witnessed. Deborah's father called 911, and the neighbor was able to provide a description of the vehicle. The neighbor was also able to provide a description of the suspect, and a composite sketch was created. However, the lead didn't yield any results. Sheriff Metza said that at first he didn't believe the kidnapping to be related because of the large difference in age. Deborah May Helmick was only nine years old, and Cherry was 17. The kidnappings were also in different jurisdictions, so it didn't immediately raise any red flags. But when the two police departments compared case files, they quickly determined that they were looking for the same individual. For the Helmicks, the idea that the two cases were connected was especially worrisome. Deborah's mother, Deborah Johnson, remembered watching the news about Sherry's case with her daughter. She also remembered her daughter seeing Sherry's picture and saying, Mama, she's so pretty. According to Deborah Johnson, her daughter was a very happy child. She loved school and wanted to either be a school teacher or a principal of school. It had been eight days since Deborah May Helmick was abducted and there had been no word from her kidnapper. Then, just after midnight, a phone rang. But it wasn't at the Helmicks. The call came to the Smith family home. He's weird and scary and creepy and all the other words. Yeah, I told you, this was one that I was like, I I think this is going to be, this might be like the, the heaviest hitter that we've done so far. It reminds me of Silence of the Lambs, like, hello, Clarice. Like, Don is Clarice. He's just enjoying playing with his family so much. It's, it's crazy. Sickening. It's sadistic. Don answered the phone to find that the killer was calling again. The killer then asked Don if she had heard the news about Deborah May Helmick. Dawn then listened closely as the man who killed her sister, Sherry, provided directions to where the police could find Deborah May Helmick. But something was different. This time, there was nothing in the man's voice that left any indication that Deborah may still be alive. Again, Sheriff Metz followed the man's instructions and was led to a wooded area. This time, he knew what he would find. As Metz headed into the wooded area, he spotted the remains of a human body. Deborah May Helmick had been left there for days. 
Detectives now had a composite sketch of the man who kidnapped Deborah, but they were no closer to catching him. Police feared if they didn't catch him, the killer would almost certainly strike again. Then the detectives finally get a break. There's DNA. That's what I was thinking, but it's 85, so I don't know. DNA came. That's like right when DNA came, right? Yeah, and it's also 1985, and it's in South Carolina, so I'm not sure how advanced it was and like if it was being used anywhere other. Okay, so this is before. DNA fingerprinting was first used in a police forensic test in 1986. Okay, so this was a year before Mm -hmm. DNA really hit the scene. Yeah, so like they were working on it, but not there. Yeah. So during the investigation, forensics experts had been analyzing the letter that Cherry Smith had sent to her family. Experts noticed that the letter had been written on a legal pad. The letter was placed into a machine that would allow the investigators to look for impressions that may have been indented by writing on a page two or three pages above where Sherry wrote her letter. The test paid off and provided investigators with a name and a partial phone number. So I don't know if you you know did this when you were a kid, but if you have like a pad of paper, you, know, you write on it, it can leave an indention a few pages down. So it seems like they just did some high-tech version of like... A pencil shadow. Yeah. Yeah. And just be like, oh, here's what was written there before. Here's my heart that I drew. Right. But before DNA, I'm sure, you know, you're like, what can I, I got to figure out some way to solve this. So to me, I was like, I would never have thought to do that. That was kind of ingenious. Yeah. The information led the police to a couple named Sharon and Ellis Shepard. The Shepherds only lived a few miles away from the Smiths. Police immediately brought the couple in for questioning, but they had been away on vacation at the time of Sherry's abduction. Investigators verified their story and cleared the couple. But as they were about to leave, investigators asked the Shepherds to listen to a tape recording of a phone call placed to the Smiths. Police hoped that the Shepherds may be able to identify the man's voice. As soon as Ellis heard the voice, he said, That dirty son of a bitch, that's Larry Jean Bell. Oh, man, here we go now. Now we have a name. We got to figure out who this man is and what his connection is with the Shepherds. So let's talk about that a little bit here. So Larry Jean Bell was born in Ralph, Alabama. He had three sisters and one brother. And as a child, his family moved frequently. Bell attended Euclid High School in Columbia, South Carolina from 1965 to 1967. His family moved to Mississippi, where Bell graduated from high school and trained as an electrician. He then returned to Columbia, South Carolina, married, and had one son. In 1970, Bell joined the Marine Corps, but was discharged the same year when he accidentally shot himself in the knee while cleaning a gun. He spent a short time as a corrections officer, and in 1972, Bell, his wife, and son moved to Rock Hill, South Carolina. Bell and his wife divorced in 1976. Now, once Bell's name came on the radar, police began to look into his past, and they found that Larry Jean Bell had convictions for stalking women. He also had a history of making obscene phone calls. At the time of Sherry's disappearance, Bell was house-sitting for the Shepherds. So right now we have no proof that he's like a murderer or anything, that he hasn't killed anybody. It just seems like he's, you know, stalking women, having these weird, maybe almost fantasy-like phone calls. To other people so it's almost like when he was house sitting the shepherds maybe he just suddenly became obsessed with sherry yeah and what's interesting is that when police were canvassing the neighborhood looking for sherry a neighbor had mentioned that they had seen a car driving back and forth that they didn't recognize and it seemed to be almost at a suspicious level so it's very possible and again this is just speculation because you know we don't know but uh, it's very possible that he was house sitting for the shepherds noticed sherry and then had that obsessive mindset and was like okay i'm just gonna drive past the house see her when i can and then he had the opportunity to take her 
and seized his opportunity. Ellis Shepard recalled coming home from vacation and Bell being obsessed with the story of Sherry Smith. Shepard stated that Bell had cut out newspaper articles about the case and had them compiled in some strange type of scrapbook. At this point, detectives were convinced that Larry Jean Bell was responsible for the murder of Sherry Faye Smith and Deborah May Helmick. But would detectives be able to arrest Bell before he struck again? Within hours of the voice identification by the Shepherds, investigators had an arrest warrant issued for Larry Jean Bell. Armed officers surrounded Bell's home and confronted him as he was leaving for work. Sheriff Metz recalled Bell seeming stunned and surprised. As he was being arrested, an FBI profiler was at the police station setting up the interrogation. The profiler's plan was to use the evidence investigators had collected to shock Bell into a confession. The profile laid out pictures of the victims and the crime scene, hoping to force Bell to face what he had done. Now, at first, Bell denied having anything to do with either of the murders. But after 12 hours of intense questioning, Bell asked to meet with Hilda and Don Smith. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that because he's being interrogated by the police and by the FBI profiler for 12 hours saying that he doesn't have anything to do with it. And then suddenly he's asking if he can meet with Sherry Smith's mother, Hilda and and her sister Dawn. I find it odd that Bell wants to sit down and meet with Sherry's sister and mother. Like if he's having a sit down conversation with them, one, he's really sick in the head because he's already been harassing Dawn. If I was Dawn, I'd be afraid to meet with him whether I'm at a police station or not. People do crazy things in those interrogation rooms. And then two, I don't know how as a sister or a mother of my deceased sibling or child, how I could sit down and face that person in such close quarters without being tearful or upset or angry and having those emotions. I don't get why he won't just leave the Smith family alone. Yeah. And to me, I agree with you a hundred percent as a parent or a sibling. And the person that I think murdered my family members, like I want to sit down and talk with you. That would be very hard for me to even consider doing, let alone actually doing. The thing that sticks out to me is that for 12 hours, he has said, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. And then he wants to do exactly what the killer has wanted to do, which is talk to the family. It definitely incriminates yourself even more when you're like, it's not me. I know the killer has been calling the family and just, you know, talking to him and give him a hard time. What I'd really like to do is just talk to the family. Yeah. Let him know. Like, duh, you've already been talking to them. To law enforcement's surprise, Hilda and Dawn agree in hopes that they may be able to get Bell to confess. The moment Dawn heard his voice, she knew Bell was the man who killed her sister. So he just incriminated himself right there. Because she has talked to him on the phone multiple times. Probably knows every way that he says every word just by listening to him. Yep, and that's two positive voice identifications at this point. There's the Shepherds and now Dawn saying, yeah, this is the voice that I've heard. But even in front of his victim's family, Bell continued to deny any involvement. But detectives wouldn't need Bell's confession after all. A search warrant of Bell's home was executed, and an overwhelming amount of evidence was collected. Detectives were able to find hair and fibers, as well as blood on a shoe that was linked back to Sherry's blood. Additionally, in the Shepherd's home, police found the actual piece of paper with the phone number and address that left the indention on the letter written by Sherry Smith. Almost two months after Sherry faced Smith's abduction and murder, Larry Jean Bell was arrested and charged. In his trial, Larry Jean Bell attempted to get off on an insanity plea. Bell said bizarre things and attempted to shock the court. Bell testified in his own defense, and while on the stand, he asked Sherry Smith's sister Dawn to marry him. However, the prosecution fought the idea that Bell was unfit to stand trial. Prosecutors made the argument that Larry Jean Bell was not a mad dog, but he was a bad dog. 
The prosecution also argued that the proof of his sanity could be heard in the phone calls with Hilda and Don Smith. It took the jury only one hour to find Larry Jean Bell guilty. That's quick. As someone who's been on a jury for a murder trial, the fact that they deliberated it for only an hour and found him to be guilty is is impressive. We sat for hours going over all the evidence and talking about it and just trying to make sure that we all had a decent understanding and debating back and forth. And it took a long time. So for an hour, it had to have been that, you know, everybody really thought that he was guilty. Yeah. And also when you're painting the picture that this person killed this woman and then became obsessed with her family, and then he's on the stand asking that family member to marry him. It's like incriminating himself. Right. And then you have the two voice identifications, and they're like, oh, right off the bat, like, oh, that's him. That's him. And, you know, that would just be like if I had to identify your voice and be like, oh, I know that. That's John. You're in my head all the time with my headphones. Like, your voice is a voice that I could recognize. We've talked plenty enough that I can identify that. And he's called Dawn plenty enough that she could do the same. Yeah, I didn't think about it that way. But that voice identification, like, if I was in a grocery store or something and I heard your voice behind me, just being like, hey, John, because we spend so much time with headphones on listening to each other and doing these podcasts, I would immediately, without even having to turn around, I'd be like, oh, that's Olivia. A hundred percent. Yeah. If you know somebody their whole life, you know, if I hear my mom's voice, I'm like, I know that's my, you know what I mean? I know that's my mom. So if you have enough conversations with somebody, especially the way that Cherry's family was having these conversations with Larry Jean Bell, I'm sure that that is going to stick in your brain way harder than like, I talked to Alice the other day and, you know, she said, hey, but you're like analyzing everything about that phone call. Bell was then tried for the kidnapping and murder of Deborah May Helmick. Again, he was found guilty. Larry Jean Bell received the death penalty in both cases. He was executed on October 4th, 1996. The Smith family and the Helmicks feel that justice was served, but that justice has done little to ease the pain of what Larry Jean Bell has done to them. And that's it. That is Larry Jean Bell. That's the disappearance of Sherry Faye Smith, Deborah May Helmick. Did I do a good job? Because again, I was going through this and I was like, I, I think I'm going to get Olivia to check the locks. So if we jump into the deadbolt test, talk to me about how you're feeling and then let me know what you would rate this. I think you did it, John. This is probably one of the, the scarier ones that we've encountered. I think this will scare a lot of people. I'm going to give it a 10. This is a case where, one, she's kidnapped. So many people are involved from the father watching her get the mail and be there and not be there, from the mom and the sister talking to him on the phone to feel like you're his prey as well, not knowing if your sister's alive or well, finding out that, that she's murdered and that she had been murdered the whole time, um, receiving the letter that was sent, um, and just knowing that this man is just this guy house-sitting down the street from them and him being in such close proximity, just the after effect of how this would make you feel being Hilda or Dawn just makes you feel uneasy all the time. I would almost feel like so paranoid that someone was coming after me, that any random phone call, like I just would have a hard time trusting people in general just by the manipulation that he did to Dawn. Yeah. And I will say in my research, I did see that, you know, Dawn, you know, she grew up, she got married. I believe she's actually a, a Christian music singer or has done some like Christian music releases, which, you know, if you're a person of faith, I'm sure you have to lean into that very heavily when something like that happens to your your family. So I just want to make sure you're giving it a 10. We're talking deadbolt test. This because this would be our first 10 for either one of us. Yes, this is going to be our first 10. This one really is just like I said, it reminds me of like Silence of the Lambs, just that manipulation, the torture, the tormenting, 
went from a 17-year-old to a 9-year-old and just kind of stalking the family. This is a scary one to me. I'm checking my deadbolt several times tonight. For me, I think this would be an 8 or a 9. And the only reason I say 8 or 9 is because... You know, when you look at what the odds are of actually being kidnapped and things like that, it's it's not very likely to happen to you. But everything about this case, one minute you see your child, the next minute your child's gone. As a parent, boom, dagger to the heart, right? Then you're getting a phone call that somebody has your daughter, boom, dagger to the heart. And then now I've got my child's last will and testimony, not even acting like she's scared, but she's telling me to be okay. Again, tears down my face because I'm yeah. a big old softy. And then to find out that the whole thing has been a game and that your loved one is actually killed day one. And now another child goes missing and this guy has become infatuated with your family. So he's calling your family to tell you about what he's done to this other kid. You know what I mean? It's just absolutely heartbreaking. And I will tell you, you know, I know I've talked about this before. I'm not a huge fan of the death penalty. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But when I read that this guy was executed on October 4th, 1996, I was like, doesn't bother me as much as some other, th- you know, some other cases that I've I've heard or, you know, other people who have been on death row. But yeah, this dude was a monster. This is exactly what the prosecutor said. He was a bad dog. They took out a bad dog. Like, I mean, he's like a true sociopath. He's someone who does manipulation and tormenting torture. I mean, I just can't say that enough. He has all the pieces of basically a sociopath. So, you know, I'm not really bothered by it either. And the crazy thing, too, is from what we know, Sherry Smith was his first victim. So if they wouldn't have caught him, it's scary to think. How many cases have you heard of where the killer goes for years? I mean, BTK, it was decades before he was caught. So... Thankfully, he was caught when he was without, you know, having this whole almost like, quote, career ahead of him of figuring out how he liked to do it. And I hate to even put it this way, but like honing his craft, you know what I mean? Like it's I'm just very thankful they got him when they when they did. Me too. And I wonder what um, Don's involvement would have been through if like had they not caught him, would he call her for every single kidnapping murder? He obviously seemed obsessed with her if he asked her to marry him and so it seems like when he kidnapped deborah his first basic instinct was to call dawn that's just odd to me and i wonder if they didn't catch him if he would continue to call her and talk to her about the cases yeah i haven't thought about that but like you know if they didn't catch him for like 10 years and you're just like yep getting another phone call you know what i mean like it's got to be it's got to be a terrifying thought and especially when dawn had mentioned that like i don't want to spend my life not knowing where this guy is or you know i have to worry about him trying to come find me so I think it's a really good point. And we want to know, if you listen to this week's podcast, where do you fall on the deadbolt test? Is it an 8 or 9 for you? Is it a 10? We really want to hear what you think. You can hit us up on the socials. We are on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. We're on Twitter at Check the Locks. And please join our Facebook group. It has been so much fun. We are at 250 members, which is absolutely crazy. We've been having a lot of fun talking back and forth and talking about cases that you know maybe people aren't aware of. So we would love to have you. All of those links are actually in the show notes. So if if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, tune in. We're now on iHeartRadio. iHeartRadio. It's <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> I know. It was awesome. Happy to be there. As many places we can get the show out. But if you pause the show, you can go into the description. We've got links for all the socials. Please join us. Come and talk to us. We would love to interact with you. And Olivia, what do you say we read a five-star review? I think besides talking about our murder cases, this is like, this is my second favorite part of the show is reading what our reviewers have to say. This week's five-star review comes from Suspar, S-U-S-P-A-R. 
um, the subject title's awesome show. Finally, just what I needed, a fresh crime podcast. I've been loving these episodes. The hosts are awesome. I love the way they tell the stories. It's very upbeat and interesting. Keep up the good work. So thank you, Susbar, for reaching out and giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Yes, Susbar, thank you so much for that five-star review. And we think you're pretty awesome, too. So if you follow us on the socials, again, hit us up. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, slide into our DMs. We would love to send you something cool. We have stickers, pins, uh, magnets, all sorts of cool stuff that we can uh, we can send you. Thank you so much for the review. If you are not a social person, check thelockspod.com, click the email button. We will link up with you and we will send you something cool. Olivia, if someone wants to have their five-star review read on the show, what do they have to do? You need to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review, and maybe next week you'll be our lucky winner. But we love hearing from you guys, so thank you for leaving us the reviews and giving us positive feedback. It's very encouraging for us. Um, We're having a really good time doing this podcast, and we're loving hearing from our listeners. So thank you again. And speaking of hearing from our listeners, just want to let you guys know, you can leave us a voicemail message. You can head over to checkthelockspod.com, click that voicemail in the bottom right-hand corner, leave us a voicemail if it's a question, comment maybe we missed something in one of the episodes you know we would love to hear if there is something that we need to talk about that we missed it was important in a case we would love that feedback or just let us know how you're liking the show we want to play those voicemails on the show hear from you so again check the lockspod.com click that little microphone in the bottom right hand corner olivia that's the episode we got another one under our belt so happy that i delivered i feel very proud of myself this is the first super high ranking episode i mean you hit a 10 so This has made my week. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for checking out the show. And until next time, don't forget to check the locks. We'll see you next week. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.